0: Το έκανε και και τούτο προλαγών e Ο You're listening to Vexed, a program on the Ephesus School Network. I'm Andrea Backus, your curator through biblical literature and its world and culture. Just as a museum curator selects, acquires, cares for, repairs objects, and discovers frauds and counterfeits, I'll be sifting through our world and culture for examples to help us better understand the biblical text. On today's episode, I'd like to talk about this phrase, the Bible as literature. The flagship program on the Ephesus School Network is, of course, entitled, The Bible as Literature literature, so capably led by Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton. And I'd like to unpack this today to help distinguish what we mean when we say the Bible as literature. There are a number of assumptions that form the foundation for this approach, and it's worth parsing them out. So I've put together 10 points Understand them as assumptions that form the basis of this statement. If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find that assumption means something that is accepted as true. I say this so that it is clear and so that you may follow the line of reasoning here. So off we go. Point number one. Now, this point sounds rather obvious, even a bit silly, but it's critical. I think the things we take as obvious are those that most need distinguishing. So, point number one the Bible is written. You're dealing with something that is consigned to writing. This is a more weighty matter than it first seems. What do I mean? I mean that its content, its message has been deposited and confined. I use that word confined specifically and intentionally. It is confined to text. It comes to us in a particular form, to letters, which form words, which form phrases, which form sentences, which form paragraphs which form chapters, which form books. One building on the other. In fact, the word text is from the Latin textus, whose root, texere, literally means something woven. To weave, fit together, braid as in cloth. It's from this stem that we have the English word textile. We're not dealing with hieroglyphics or illustrations, or visual images to communicate a message. You're dealing with words. The Bible is crafted, woven, if you will, in a particular way. It has a starting and an ending, and it cannot be altered. You, as the reader, as the hearer, are stuck with this text the way that it is written. Now, any reader of any kind of literature knows this. The way that we read, in fact, is actually quite taken for granted. Consider that it's a little bit like the way that we take our own breathing for granted. We take in air in a particular way because the machine of our lungs works that way. It's the system. We're locked into it the sense of being locked into a particular reality in a text is actually embedded in the terms we use for it. The word Bible comes from the Greek biblos, which means book. The word literature comes from the Latin for words. The word scripture is from the Latin meaning writing or written. So we have a book of words written. Each of these terms reinforces this association. Point number two. The Bible says what it wants to say. It's constructed in a particular way to suit the aims of its authors. Biblical scholar Tom Dykstra, in his excellent commentary on the Gospel of Mark, called Mark, canonizer of Paul, expresses this well. He refers to the New Testament Gospels as cohesive literary works in which each part was carefully and deliberately crafted and organized to serve the author's overall purposes. He refers to the biblical authors as literary craftsmen who came from and worked within a literary culture. We assume intentionality on the part of the authors, Biblical scholar Thomas Brody, in his memoir of his lifetime of biblical scholarship, makes a useful comparison. He gives the example of Picasso and Picasso's art. Consider Picasso's paintings of faces which are distorted, strange-looking. You can debate whether you like them or not, but you assume intent without thinking about it. The fact that he painted distorted faces does not mean that Picasso could not draw a face. Another example comes to us from Mark Twain, the master of satire. In his Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the character Pap, for example, speaks with improper grammar, and Twain misspells the words spoken by Pap. He says, government and git, and something. Does this mean that Twain doesn't know how to spell correctly? Well, it's true that Twain is said to have complained about sticklers for correct spelling, but the answer is no. It's clearly an intentional use. Twain is giving his character a particular way of speaking to help tell the story that he wants to tell. Twain himself speaks about this issue in his text. At the beginning of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, before chapter one, Twain writes a few lines which he has entitled explanatory. Let's hear what Twain has to say about his crafting of his story. Quote, In this book, a number of dialects are used to wit the Missouri Negro dialect, the extremist form of the Backwoods Southwestern dialect, the ordinary Pike County dialect, and four modified varieties of this last. The shadings have not been done in a haphazard fashion or by guesswork, but painstakingly and with the trustworthy guidance and support of personal familiarity with these several forms of speech. I make this explanation for the reason that without it, many readers would suppose that all these characters were trying to talk alike and not succeeding. Unquote. Signed, the author. With Twain, his use of satire is so effective that I'm not sure if he isn't ribbing the reader with this explanation. Even if he is giving us an eye wink here, It's interesting that he has made the effort to preface his story to help the reader follow his story. Twain has full control. He is telling his story his way. And that's the point. Point number three. The Bible comes from a tradition of classical literature. The ancient epics formed the culture and identity of the time. If we take a look at the first century AD, for example, and the cultural setting in which the New Testament books were written, we can hear the influence of the ancient epics. Dennis MacDonald is a biblical scholar whose work I follow, and in Professor MacDonald's body of scholarship, he argues that the biblical authors were quite aware of the Homeric epics, and he writes about the connection between the culture of classical antiquity and the biblical text, and the influence of classical antiquity on the Bible. In a piece he wrote called Imitations of Greek Epics in the Gospels, he cites a first-century contemporary to the evangelists. Listen as this first-century source describes the influence of the Homeric epics on first-century culture. From the earliest age, children beginning their studies are nursed on Homer's teaching. One might say that while we were still in swathing bands, we sucked from his epics as from fresh milk. He assists the beginner and later the adult in his prime. In no stage of life, From boyhood to old age, do we ever cease to drink from him? This first century source goes on to describe manuscript collections at that time. He writes, Among the catalog of manuscripts from Greco-Roman Egypt, more than 600 were Homer, then Demosthenes with 83, Euripides with 77, and Hesiod with 72. Macdonald explains that literary education in antiquity, to a large extent, involved imitating poetry, even for writing prose. The beginning student would trace the letters of the names of Homeric characters. Later, he might create a list of archaic words in the Iliad. Ask the Grammaticos, the teacher of literature, for definitions and then paraphrase the model. So much a part of the culture was narrative poetry that there were special classes of performers. Homeridae, members of an ancient guild of Homeric recitation, and rhapsodes, called song-stitchers, recited the epics publicly. The stories of the poets provided ancient artists, both Greek and Roman, with many favorite characters and episodes. They appear on temple friezes, wall paintings in private homes, sarcophagi, vases, mosaics, gems, mirrors, jewelry boxes, and even coins. Even Christians owned such objects. For example, on a 3rd century AD Christian sarcophagus, there is a depiction of Odysseus strapped to the mast and sailing past the sirens which is thought to symbolize the journey of the soul to heaven. Today, one need only watch the ongoing excavation of first-century Pompeii to see the influence of Homer on wall paintings and sculpture. In the Bible, we find literary linkages to the Homeric epics. Shared themes, motifs, and imagery. The Bible is replete with classical motifs. Temples, chariots, kings, family conflict and rivalries, conquest, infidelity, revenge, abuse of power, and also motifs that give us a window into the physical setting. We have sheep and land, desert, mountains, vegetation, water, oases, gardens, seas, seafaring, and shipwrecks. Professor MacDonald's work compares the imagery and motifs in Homeric epics with those in the Gospel of Mark. He writes, In the Odyssey, one finds adventures at sea, feasts for thousands, cavemen, inept and cowardly comrades, a meeting with the dead, murderous rivals, the hero's secrecy, and the recognition of his true identity. And MacDonald finds analogs in Mark, for example, characters such as the Gerasene demoniac, the Syrophoenician woman, and blind Bartimaeus. He also sees parallels between scenes in the book of Acts and scenes in the Iliad. Professor Brody also wrote about this literary sharing. In his memoir, he talks about his study of the character Jacob in the book of Genesis. He makes connections with Homer's Odyssey. The account of Jacob moving the great stone in Genesis chapter 29 verses 1 to 10 resembles the Odyssey story of the Cyclops moving a great stone in the Odyssey book 9. Father Paul Tarazi in his Magnum Opus The Rise of Scripture Writes about how classical fables function in the Bible. Like classical Greek fabler Aesop, the biblical school uses fable at times. In the book of Judges, chapter 9, we hear such a fable. The trees, vines, and bramble are given a voice to speak and are stand-ins for the people. Father Tarazi in his commentary on Luke Acts makes a compelling case that the Jason we find in Acts chapter 17 is intended by the author to make a connection with the mythic Jason of Jason and the Argonauts and their quest for the golden fleece. Father Tarazzi writes, It is quite appropriate for Luke, when speaking of a mission among the native Greek people, to convey his message using elements from Greek mythology that he can assume are well known to them as the Old Testament writers before him used terminology common among ancient Near Eastern peoples to describe the effects of God's prophetic word. Luke also communicates with his audience in their own language. Point number four. In the world of classical literature, it was common practice for writers to imitate classical themes and make them their own. Professor Brody gives Virgil as an example. The Roman poet Virgil, who wrote the epic poem The Aeneid at the time of Augustus Caesar around 19 B.C., was schooled on the Greek authors. Brody has this to say, The kernel of ancient writing was not in allusions, It was in taking hold of entire books and transforming them systematically. Virgil did not allude to Homer. He swallowed him whole. And there are comparable, systematic transformations within the Bible. We find Professor MacDonald again useful on this topic. He cites the example of Quintilian, Roman educator and rhetorician in the first century A.D. who wrote in his Institutio Oratoria how literary education worked at that time, and he describes this process of absorbing a literary work in order to then create a new work of one's own. Quintilian wrote that teachers should equip future orators with literary models to inform their compositions. The goal was to saturate students in exemplary texts, and for Quintilian, Homer was the model par excellence. The learner was to absorb them, such that they would be able to imitate them without having to consult them physically. Quintilian also says, By frequently rereading the models, one can adapt them more subtly. Professor MacDonald argues for and explains this practice. He argues that this is what the writer of the Gospel of Mark did. He took imagery, symbols, and themes from Homer and transformed them into the story that he wanted to tell. MacDonald calls this literary mimesis. Point number five. Over the centuries, the Bible was perceived as a work of classical literature, and prized as such. We find the biblical text housed among works of classical literature. In the book, Secrets of Mount Sinai, the story of finding the world's oldest Bible, Codex Sinaiticus, James Bentley tells the story of the discovery of the Codex. He writes about Professor Nicholas Panayotakis, an expert in the literature of the Middle Ages, who in 1975 had reviewed the manuscript collection at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai. The professor had this to say about what he found there. Apart from its store of manuscripts, the library possesses another 5,000 printed books some of them dating from the earliest years of printing. I saw an odyssey published in Florence in 1428, with spaces left for the insertion of ornamental capitals. The find also contains speeches by early Christian fathers of the Church, such as St. John Chrysostom. And alongside these were found pagan works, such as eight pages of Homer's Iliad, and four pages from a 10th-century edition of the works of Aristotle. A few years ago, I visited the Loire Valley in France. It's a beautiful river valley where the French kings had their country castles. On a tour of the Chateau of Chenonceau, which was built in the late 1500s, I was struck by a collection of paintings. Together on one wall, there were three paintings. Two were biblical scenes, lovely pieces, by French painter Jean Jovenet. One was Jesus overturning tables in the temple, more commonly known as the cleansing of the temple. And as a side note, it's interesting that we find this story told in slightly different ways in all four Gospels. If you're interested in looking up those references, they are as follows. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 13, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 18, Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48, and John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. It would be interesting to do a little study comparing the four, but I digress. The other painting was the prophet Samuel appearing to Saul. If you'd like to look up that reference, it's from 1 Samuel, chapter 28. And the third painting was by an unknown Italian painter. The piece is unsigned. It depicts the Greek god Apollo visiting and receiving hospitality from Admetos the Argonaut and the king of Pharae in Thessaly. Two things stuck out for me. The first is that they were all painted in the same era, the 17th century. And the second is that they were all mounted on the same wall. Of course, I can't know how the paintings and decor may have been moved around over the centuries, but it seems to me that it makes a statement about how classical literature was perceived. The Bible and Greek mythological themes were both cultural touch points and sources of inspiration. Point number six, the Bible is a long story. The Old Testament alone is longer than the Iliad and Odyssey combined. In Father Terazi's Rise of Scripture, he points out that there are 593,493 words in the Old Testament, the shorter Hebrew canon, compared with 269,183 words in both the Iliad and Odyssey. Point number seven. You have to deal with the fact that it's a long story. You, as the reader, as the hearer, submit to the story. Your submission to it is assumed. You wouldn't, for example, read one chapter of the Harry Potter series, or even one volume of the Lord of the Rings series, and then claim to know the story Similarly, when you watch a movie, you suspend judgment in order to follow the story. An example that came to mind for me was, remember that movie back in the 90s, The Sixth Sense? It was a psychological thriller and I found myself intrigued and drawn in by the story and I thought that I understood what was going on. But then it wasn't until the very end that the story is fully explained and complete. And it was at that point that I realized that I had gotten it all wrong. It's a great thriller, and you should see it if you're a fan of psychological thrillers. Now, turning to an ancient source, Quintilian, first century Roman educator and rhetorician I mentioned earlier, wrote about how to teach children the classic texts. He calls the classics literary models, and he advocates not only frequent reading and rereading, but he writes that these works are not to be studied merely in parts, but that children must read through the whole work from cover to cover and then read it afresh. I was stunned when I came across this. This is what I'm talking about. You also have to submit to the biblical story from cover to cover, long though it may be. Point number eight the Bible is a unity, it has an internal consistency. The Old and New Testament are one book, and the books are put in a particular order. So we have a long story that starts with Genesis and ends with Revelation. Point number nine, the way something is written tells you something valuable about what the author wants to say. Recall earlier I said that the Bible comes from a particular tradition of classical literature. You might call it its literary context. Professor Brody wrote about this issue, and he offers an analogy that's useful in understanding this point. He writes, If a newspaper announces cheap flights to Mars, it's important to note whether the advertisement occurs in the travel section or in the cartoon jokes page. Clarity on the literary factor is rule one. The Bible is not ordinary writing. It is neither comic strip nor obituary. It's an epic instructional story. This is the literary context we'll be talking about on this program. Point number 10. The purpose of this instructional story, as with all good classical literature, is to teach. We know from the biblical text itself that its purpose is to teach The hearer something. It is instruction whose purpose is to impart instruction. The great classical epics shared this purpose, and this is well known. You might be familiar with the Great Courses series, you can find them online. In the course on the Roman Empire, Professor Gregory Alderetti expresses this very point about Livy's history of Rome he says. Livy's history of early Rome is filled with incredible stories of legendary heroes such as Mucius. He's referring to Mucius Scavola here. And many of these figures are now regarded as belonging more to the realm of myth than of history. Nevertheless, these stories of early Roman heroes were repeatedly told to Roman children by their parents. While ostensibly presented as Roman history, these tales served a much more important purpose than simply informing children about the past. They were also a way of inculcating Roman values in the next generation of Romans and of giving them a stronger sense of community and group identity. They provided role models and defined expected standards of behavior and morality. In this context, whether or not the stories were strictly true is less significant than the didactic purpose that they served. Tom Dykstra, again in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, explains the Bible's didactic purpose this way. He writes, Scripture is not read simply so that the reader might become more knowledgeable about something or to learn the truth about something in order to satisfy curiosity. It is read with a view to finding out how God decrees that one should live, think, and behave. So ends the 10 points. There are a number of other points and perhaps we will explore them on a future podcast. That's all for now. Until next time, this is Vexed. Vexed is a production of the Ephesus School Network.